0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and occasionally we like to tell our listeners about podcasts we really like, and a podcast we really like is called The Endless Knot. It's hosted by Avin McMaster and Mark Sunderham. Mark is a medievalist and... Avon is a classicist, and on their podcast, they talk about all manner of things, medieval and classical, and occasionally other intellectual topics, which I think you'll find very interesting, and they're really entertaining hosts, let me say that. You can find The Endless Knot on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and other places where you find podcasts, or you can just go directly to their website, which is alliterative.net, that's A-L-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E.net, net, and you can download episodes there. The episode you're about to listen to is from The Endless Knot, and I hope you find it
1: entertaining. Thanks very much. Welcome to The Endless Knot Podcast,
2: where the more we know,
1: the more we want to find out,
2: tracing serendipitous connections through our lives
1: and across disciplines.
2: Hi, I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And today we're going to be speaking with Winston Black about the Middle Ages. But first, a couple of administrative things. First, we want to say a great big thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Gabby Sobral, Felipe Platek, Nash Mahoney, Sig TM, and Klaus Jensen. Thanks all. If you'd like to join them in helping to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash endless knot, or alliterative. I really have to figure (laughs) this out someday. (laughs) Anyway, just search for The Endless Knot, you'll find us. We really appreciate all of our supporters very, very much. Next, we have some exciting news about an event in October. The conference that we went to last year, the Sound Education Conference, is happening again. It's in Boston, the week of, um, just before Canadian Thanksgiving, in fact. Um, Slightly inconveniently, but that's okay. (laughs) From October 9th through 12th, there are events happening.
1: And once again, I'm organizing a linguistics panel uh, with a bunch of great people on it. Ray Belli of uh, Words for Granted, uh, who you may well listen to already. But if you don't, you really should.
2: And he was on He was on our podcast,
1: mm-hmm. so you may remember that episode. Also, the wonderful Helen Zaltzman of The Illusionist podcast. Another one you should be listening to. We have views about what you should listen to. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie Gillen of The Vocal Fries
2: Another uh, again, podcast that we had on as, a guest, yep. as guests here.
1: And also Gretchen McCulloch of Lingthusiasm, who mm-hmm. also, you may already be aware, has a new book out uh, that we've talked about before, I believe.
2: I can't remember now, but anyway. we <laughs> I've, <have>. certainly <laughs> been,
1: I've, I've certainly been uh,
2: reading it and talking about reading it. Reading it and talking <laughs> in about in it real and, life. and
1: posting about it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the new book is Because Internet, and it's all about the linguistics of uh, online language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... What a great panel.
2: Yeah, so that panel will be on the Friday. Mm-hmm. I'm also uh, convening a couple of panels. One I'll moderate when I'm not actually on. I just put it together. One is on using podcasts um, as assignments in the classroom, and the other is on uh, the intersection of audio you know, recording or podcasts and academia, academic careers, and how they help or potentially harm academic careers. <laughs> so those ones will be also on the Friday. And then there's going to be on the Saturday um, a bunch of talks by podcasters. So that's if you're a podcast listener and would like to come and hear some of your favorite um, podcasters. The Saturday event is probably the biggest draw. You can purchase tickets for individual days. You can also purchase tickets for individual sessions if you want, for just one session, if there's something you really want to go attend. absolutely. So the website for that is soundeducation.fm. It has all the information there, the speakers, uh, a page for for buying tickets, and the places and everything else. As I said, it's in Boston. Um, some stuff will be at Harvard, some at Boston University, and some at some other locations. Um, there's a couple of evening events going on before and after. Oh, one other person. So the keynote speakers are a number of them. but One of them is Helen Zaltzman, and the other is Mike Duncan from the History of Rome and Revolutions. Yes, so, who we've also... also talked to on on this podcast. So yes, it is very much hitting (laughs) our sweet spot in terms of (laughs) our interests. And we are going to, of course, both be there.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And we're very much looking forward to it. So if you are going to be near Boston that week or weekend and want to drop by, we'd love to see you. Certainly, if you do attend, do let us know. Absolutely. All right. So turning now to our interview today, we spoke with our friend, Winston Black. Mark, can you tell us a bit?
1: Yes. uh, Winston is a medieval historian and author of four books. Uh, He teaches courses in the history of medicine and is currently running a seminar on the Black Death, specifically. Uh, Winston has his PhD from the Centre for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto, as do I. Uh, Today, we're speaking to him about his new book, The Middle Ages, Facts and
2: Fictions. So without further ado... Here is our conversation with Winston. So welcome, Winston. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having
0: me. It's great to be here.
1: We're so pleased to be able to talk about this book. So uh, just to describe it uh, a little bit to the listeners, basically, this is a book that you know debunks a lot of popular, persistent myths and misunderstandings about the Middle Ages.
2: So our first question is, how did you come to write it? How, what's the sort of origin story? Uh, sure, about? yeah. Uh, it really
0: came out of a series of fortunate coincidences and valuable connections.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: A number of years ago, I it was 2011, 2012, uh, I was invited to contribute to uh, a Festdrift a volume in honor of a scholar of medieval medicine, John Riddle. Uh, who's since become Mm. a dear friend. And uh, he, uh, we didn't know each other before then, but our our work overlapped. And uh, he really, really liked my contribution to that volume. And we got to know each other in person and by email. And a few years later, um, uh, he actually contacted me again, uh, about co-writing a textbook with him. Uh, He had already done the first edition of a textbook just called uh, A History of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And um, usually when you do these textbooks, uh, if you want to keep on doing them, they come out every six or so years, depends on the press. And he's getting on in years. And he said he really needed some help uh, cleaning it up, getting the scholarship up to date. And anyway, he asked me to co-write the second edition with him. And that came out in uh, 2016. And that was very exciting. And that was really my first foray into, call it more popular history, Uh, Mm -hmm. a history made accessible for students and wider audience. And so a little bit after that, out of the blue, I got contacted by an editor at the press ABC Clio. And uh, they said they'd actually seen the textbook. And they were wondering if I was interested in contributing to a new series they were thinking of on facts and fictions. Uh, They had a one volume lined up already just on Vikings. That's why there's no Vikings in my book. I wanted to do Vikings, but there's an entire Vikings volume. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I worked on that over the next uh, year and a half or so. And uh, it eventually yeah came out this, this last summer.
2: One of the questions we were going to ask you are, are you may still, but uh, is about unexpected connections and and. Felicitous coincidences, and I guess there's <laughs> there's one already. <laughs> yeah,
0: right? Definitely, yeah. You got to use who you know, and so it was mm-hmm. great to have these connections here.
2: And it's great to be able to move from the scholarly to the sort of more more popular. That's not always the easiest transition.
0: No, no. It's it's a very different kind of writing, very different mm-hmm. kind of research and audience.
2: So, I mean,
1: obviously, this you know this opportunity came up kind of unexpectedly. But why do you think this? Book and I guess this this whole series, perhaps, why now? Why is this particularly relevant at this at this moment?
2: And there's been myths about the Middle Ages for as long as we've called them the Middle Ages. Sure, why yeah. is it a particularly sort of <laughs> useful or necessary to debunk them now?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's 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 always been necessary. I feel. I mean, I I've been teaching medieval history since 2007, and it's always been. At first, it's fun to see students coming in with misconceptions, and we, we fix them in class, and that's just part of teaching. But it really seems, you know, would say in the last 20 years, but even more so the last 10 years, the Middle Ages, especially popular mythical version of the Middle Ages, uh, has become especially dangerous as it's become embraced by more radicalized groups uh really around the world i'm more concerned about north america but it's certainly in europe and in in the middle east people want to embrace a vision of the medieval past that can support their view of the present or the present that they want Mm. and uh this is especially problematic of course with the crusades uh i bring up in the introduction of my book Uh, And a lot of people know about listeners will know about this, but the infamous incident when right after the attacks on 9-11, President Bush called America's act of vengeance, a crusade and uh, Mm -hmm. bringing up this medieval language of a righteous war. But of course, when we're in the context of a still a predominantly Christian nation fighting against a (laughs) explicitly Islamic group. Invoking the Crusades is, was a uh, very bad optics. <laughs> and of course, uh, not just medieval historians, but almost anybody informed about the past immediately called out Bush at, at that time. But that was just the first of numerous incidences that are becoming more and more common as alt right groups, uh, neo Nazi groups, and others are invoking a fictional all-white, extremely violent past that they want to revive, in some cases. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, while I only brought it up really in the introduction of my book, I, I, that, that very serious uh, shadow is kind of looming over the whole work.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they want something that they want to revive, or they want to use the Middle Ages as a, um, to validate, or to mm-hmm. provide prestige for, or in some way yeah give give some legitimize, legitimize or, that was uh-huh. the word i was looking for or make respectable any of those yeah. things particular versions of of the present as you say mm-hmm. it's we being wrong about the past might irritate us from a historian's point of view but in a vacuum doesn't matter it's what that effect has on the present It's what exactly. you do with that information yeah. about the past
1: and it is striking that this you know co-opting of the medieval past comes at a time when, you know, medievalism, you know, in popular culture is also at the forefront. And there are so many, you know, like Game of Thrones or Mm -hmm. so many popular conceptions of what a medieval world is like is, you know, uh, so current for a lot of people that, and they get their, their sense of, you know, if they're not experts, they get their sense of what Mm
3: -hmm.
1: the medieval world was like from these fictional accounts. Mm -hmm. And so they've got these two sources, you know, that are not very reliable. They've got Mm -hmm. the, you know, hollywood middle ages and they've got this
2: online self-proclaimed historians let's yeah exactly, call it yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i mean which is not a, a dig at um credentialism it's a dig at education like what, hmm. what what are your you don't need credentials but you do need some kind of verification of the facts when you're mm-hmm. going to go around talking about the, the past yeah, I mean, everyone knows that, as you say in your introduction, it's not that you're suggesting that people think Monty Python or Game of Thrones is correct. <laughs> of course, they all know their fictions, but nonetheless, the kind of general background or yeah. sort of understanding of um, the what the world was like is very heavily informed by that, mm-hmm. even if everyone knows that, of course, the facts are not correct. <laughs>
0: I mean, that's a fun and, and constant problem on the lighter side of, of this, yeah, the medievalism, uh, medieval fantasy in particular with the Tolkien and Game of Thrones mm-hmm. and so on, or you say Monty Python, where, yeah, people watch it. They can say, oh, of course, there's no dragons. And, of course, uh, uh, they didn't beat themselves on the head like that. But the rest of the background is correct, right? Mm-hmm. And. And a lot of people do think uh, that 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 is somehow right. Like, I I, I really uh, go after the TV shows that have the constantly filthy peasants Mm -hmm. and and people (laughs) or filthy everyone. And that's just what people expect uh, from a medieval-ish show. (laughs) People were dirty then, right? Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Uh,
0: It lends authenticity.
2: Yes, yes. It makes it seem like, because it has to be somehow different Uh, you know, that's part of constructing a fictional world is it has to look different from now. So if things are too much like now, then that means it Mm -hmm. must be inauthentic.
1: Yeah. And it's that idea of, you know, gritty realism,
2: like literally gritty. (laughs) Yeah, that's particularly true in this last, as I think you point that out in one of the chapters on the one on peasants where, you know, the medieval world was filthy. You know, if you look back at Camelot or something like that from the Mm -hmm. 50s, they don't have everybody dirty. Because their Middle Ages is a sort of high fantasy of, nobility and chivalry. Um, But it's part of the larger turn towards gritty realism in the last 15, 20 years.
0: Yeah, I I really think it began in the 90s. And yeah, if I pull out uh, the Kevin Costner, Robin Hood is uh, starting to turn towards more dirt.
3: (laughs) And then the dirt (laughs) just
0: become overwhelming now where it's just everyone.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yes, okay, more dirt, sure. Like, uh, you know, we have this in the ancient world too. uh, You know, the gleaming white marble of Rome in... uh, 50s epic yeah. movie is, is certainly not true either there's lots of that's not true either so you have to flip the side and say okay so the more dirt there is in rome the more realistic and and to some degree it's true right yeah. you do need the world like the streets of new york are filthy in their own way so you know you need some kind of real lived in realism sure. to it but but you can push it a little too far. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, it's like the, the creators of HBO's Rome, where, yeah, the yeah. whole uh, great intro sequence is nothing but grit and graffiti. And we know that was there, mm-hmm. but was it really that dirty? I don't know.
2: Um <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> so on that note, yeah, you've chosen, what is it, 10 or 11?
0: I guess I got one big intro chapter and then 10 other myths, yeah.
2: 10, 10 chapters. Yeah. So why those myths? You know, why you... you You had to select, obviously, a particular number. What was the reasoning behind it?
0: Oh, a lot of factors had to come into play. I wanted to, of course, use my own area of expertise, which really is medieval science and medicine. And so readers of the book will see that, yeah, uh, parts of it really lean heavily towards that. There's a chapter on the medieval church supposedly suppressing science, one whole chapter on medicine being nothing but superstition, and one whole chapter on the Black Death. And I guess actually there's also the right. flat earth chapter that also has a lot of science. So there mm-hmm. I was really uh, playing to my strengths, but I also wanted to make sure there were some of the basic imagery myths, the sort of things we are talking about. When people think middle ages, they think, well, dirt, <laughs> they think dark ages. And that was the, the very first chapter. And then also, um, uh, chapter on peasants never bathing so um trying to pull out the some of the basic imagery of what people think of as stereotypical medieval i wanted to have a few chapters on those oh and uh, yeah i was also just looking at my chapter list here uh, trying to remember (laughs) knights on horseback Uh, a few chapters were difficult because the myths are things that do exist but the myth is people Mm -hmm. blow it massively out of proportion Yes, people were probably dirty, but we overdo it. Yes, knights on Horseback existed, but not nearly as much as movies want us to believe.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So um, I'm just looking at my list here again. Oh, and of course, uh, there's a a number of myths that belong to other eras, uh, especially witches. There's this uh, Mm -hmm. overwhelming tendency to believe that, oh, Middle Ages, they believed in witchcraft and burned witches. As you guys know, (laughs) they didn't. (laughs) That really is a post-medieval phenomenon. And I had to write a fine balance there. Really want my readers to understand, yes, this was a horrific and very real episode where several thousand people, mostly women, were unjustly killed for uh, these false accusations. But it ain't medieval. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find those threads throughout all the chapters of reminding the readers some of these things are completely false. Others belong to another era. Others are myths of too much emphasis. It was I. I, I know you. You asked me to think about also what uh, maybe didn't make it in, and I think mm-hmm. if <laughs> there's no reviews out of this uh, yet, uh, but I bet there will be criticism, and there's bound to be criticism of what I didn't include. <sighs> Uh,
1: so you could almost like write two books on this topic and 15. still not. They're
2: called oh. history textbooks, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, in a sense. that's yeah. 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 So you've got to be selective at
1: some yeah. point, right?
2: <laughs> and and
0: uh, an, uh, about a decade ago, a very similar book came out. Uh, it was called Misconceptions of the Middle Ages, I think is the title. Mm. And It's a great book, but that actually has over 30 chapters. Each one is only about four pages and each one's written mm. by a different person. So Mm. they could really hit everything under the sun. Um, (laughs) I really was given a limit of 10, 11 chapters, and they needed to be longer and have more material and a deeper exploration of how and why these myths came about. It really hurt. uh, Like, I wanted a chapter about myths about women, because there's so many preconceptions about, oh, women had no power in the Middle Ages. Women weren't allowed to leave the home. And and more graphic ones uh, that you get, of course, from Game of Thrones, the idea of constant rape as being a normal part of medieval culture. I, this is a chapter I really wanted to include, but a goal I had for each chapter was I needed to balance out the primary sources. And that's one of the things that makes mm. this book different from any other book on, on historical myths. And that's how ABC Cleo is pitching this series. Each chapter is going to have and has uh, sources that represent how the myth came about, but also sources that show how the, the, fec- the fiction is wrong. And mm-hmm. it was really hard to find a written source in particular that projected that myth that I think is so common about win- a series of myths that's common about women in the Middle Ages, what I really needed was a bunch of film clips (laughs) and I I couldn't do that uh, with this. And so, yeah, uh, that was, that was a chapter I wanted to include likewise um, a chapter on race and diversity in Mm -hmm. medieval culture. And again, that taps into these uh, really dangerous myths that are um, being perpetuated more and more now about this myth of a, a lily white, purely, northern christian uh europe that didn't exist Mm -hmm. but that certain people want to see uh in the past and again the the sources of the myth tend to be movies which show Mm -hmm. this purely white purely christian frankly it looks like a protestant christian rather than a catholic christian (laughs) yeah Yeah, they're they're, they're 20th, (laughs) mid 20th century, later 20th century movies that really don't understand and don't want to understand how complicated and different the Middle Ages were from modern America and Canada and Western Europe.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's something that is not going to be explicitly discussed, but it will just be shown. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so how do you, how do you find a source for that?
2: And cherry pick. Well, I mean, there probably are sources, but I can very much imagine you wouldn't want to include them because the sources you'll find Mm. the written sources there are in the world right now, but you know, they're straight on hate speech. They're straight on. Like, like you could go onto the internet and you could find (laughs) people giving their explicit, but they, you know, they're not in any way scholarly. They're not even widespread in the mainstream. You know, you'd Mm -hmm. have to go and find places that we all hope most people aren't looking yeah. And they would be upsetting enough, I think, that you probably wouldn't want to include them. It would have to for for something that was popular and mm-hmm. kind of
1: yeah. readable. And there, there
0: was a conscious choice I had to make after a bit of uh going down that very dark rabbit hole, mm-hmm. uh spending some time on 4chan, 8chan, mm-hmm. looking briefly at uh Anders Brevik's hate treatise treatises, yes, uh, which exactly invokes right. the Templars. And that was it, yeah, I I didn't even want to touch myths about Templars Mm -hmm. in this, in in part because there's a quite good uh, recent book specifically about crusade myths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so while these books can and should overlap a little, (laughs) this this book about crusade myths just came out about two years ago. So yeah, I ended up with one chapter uh, about crusades, specifically just about the children's crusade. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to find this one crusading myth that was something that really didn't exist at all. (laughs) Whereas, of course, the Templars Mm -hmm. did exist, but people have built an entire world of myths about what they wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there were a a lot of balancing acts in the book. What do I include? What do I not include? What do I want to read? And I frankly got Mm -hmm. just physically and emotionally sick going into some of the very dark places of medieval myths. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want this to be a serious book, but also (laughs) not one about that part of medievalism.
2: Mm -hmm. well that brings us to the point of the of the audience and sort of goals you know, who, who is envisioned as the audience for this? What is the goal of the book in a larger sense? Like, how does it fit into the landscape of who's going to read it? And how how do you imagine it being used? Or how would you like to see it used?
0: Yeah, that was yeah uh, another balancing act between what I wanted. And of course, what the the, the press wanted. Uh, ABC Clio is very clear about this is a book for sitting on a uh, high school or college library shelf, mm-hmm. and especially a book that a student can uh, on their own, or be assigned by a teacher one chapter. Uh, they could do a little project on it, they could dive deeper into it, and, and ABC Clue is uh, really famous for that. For over 60 years, they've been making mostly history books, as their name suggests, for high school and college level classes. Uh, so it's not meant to be a book that you're going to find at Barnes & Noble or Chapters, but it's a book for, yeah that, that I, I want, of course, uh, for my own vanity and uh, pocketbook <laughs> uh, that does... Uh, <laughs> Uh, find appeal for a wider audience just for mm. pop readers but also maybe even for uh, professors and scholars or non-medievalist uh, professors of history to dip into uh, from time to time it was really gratifying to find out i was talking to a senior medievalist who was looking through the book and they knew most of it but they had never even heard of the myth of pope joan which i thought <laughs> <laughs> at least among medievalists was uh, normal yeah, <laughs> Yeah. So they, they suddenly realized, here's something new for me. Or um, mm-hmm. they, of course, knew that medieval people didn't believe the earth was flat, but they didn't know about the background of Washington Irving uh, being yeah. the main perpetuator mm-hmm. of that myth. So um, I, I, I hope uh, it can reach both audiences, uh, primarily mm-hmm. for, for uh, students and teachers to use in the classroom. Uh, yeah. but also I sure hope it comes out in paperback. It's only in hardcover right now, <laughs> but, uh, reach that wider audience, uh, because I really wanted to make it accessible and readable, uh, quickly a chapter at a time.
1: Yeah, And I think one of the things that, you know, even for professors who may or are aware of these myths already, it provides, and I think this is one of the, the really exciting things about this book is it provides those primary sources. So they may not, you know, they may be vaguely aware, yeah, this is a myth, Uh, But exactly, you know, what the paper trail is there, you know, how did this happen? They may not know those details. And so it can be useful to that audience for that reason.
0: Yeah, that they can uh, dip right into it without having to do some of that pedagogical legwork. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Thinking of the very first chapter on the Dark Ages, this, of course, is uh, terminology that goes back centuries, not a modern Mm -hmm. myth. And being able to yeah, show to just any reader, but also to a teacher who might not know where where this language comes from um Mm -hmm. what they can show to students about the sources of these myths
2: because i really do find that a really interesting part of it and i really like the primary sources Mm -hmm. um in particular the primary sources about how the myths developed yeah Yeah. that seems to me the most unlike surprising or unusual part of it the the primary sources debunking it are really good but it's the primary sources about how the myth gets created and transmitted that i find very interesting yeah a
1: lot of that stuff i didn't particularly know you know especially no. all these later writers who were
2: yeah all the 18th 19th century yeah, writers this,
1: this you know imaginary idea about mm. the middle Ages. Yeah. So that was really cool to read i mean yeah i mean some of this stuff coming to the book i had
0: known already obviously but i did a lot of research and really uh, if you read through the whole book you realize uh i really have a bone to pick with jules michelet <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like realizing just how much damage <laughs> this yeah. mid-19th century French superhero of historiography, I mean, one of the founders of history mm-hmm. as we know it. Yeah, just mm-hmm. how much uh, damage he did and just myths he created left and right. But yeah, there are more, m- much more recent people that I go after uh, as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I, of course, uh, found, found that myth-hunting to be the the most interesting part in some ways and it's a, I think it's turning into another career for me uh, i've got uh <laughs> several more projects planned which follow along these lines of i never thought i'd be doing it but a medievalism uh, the, mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. shaping of the semi-mythical middle ages especially in the last 200 years <laughs> uh mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. what's uh re- really interesting me and um it's turning into several other projects
2: that's interesting you know, when you think about when I, when we were talking about the, what you chose to leave in and what leave out or not put in um, and, you know, the reasoning behind not putting in one about myth and um, about the myths about a white middle ages, because of how dark it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes perfect sense for as, you know, having it as a teachable thing in high school, like what, what can you put in that's going to be palatable to everybody that's oh. going to be useful. And I think also, I mean, who knows if it will actually, if this Who knows how any of this works and how debunking myths actually functions? There's this whole psychology behind it that's very complicated. But by not specifically addressing those sort of core centers of some people's beliefs, I think you maybe actually be, maybe able to kind of be more useful in some ways. Because what I find really interesting about each of your chapters is how good a job they do at explaining why myths are created. And why they're created the way they are, and how they're useful to the, how particular interpretations of the past are useful to the people who interpret the past that way, how they're shaped unconsciously by certain kinds of, you know, contemporary political or religious or whatever situations, and then how they're consciously exploited or used as polemical devices or whatever you know whether it be religious whether it be about a narrative of progress whether it be in the services of nationalism you know whether it be all of these different ideas by showing that process as you do with the primary sources and with your discussion in a i mean you you have a polemical position but it's not because the discussions you're ma- you're having are not these really really scary stuff you're able to sort of do it from a reasonably dispassionate position i think i hope so i hope so yeah, yeah. i mean you you know you you sort of as it were show your hand in the introduction yes. but and, and i think that's good and and right but but you know you aren't addressing the like absolutely most toxic stuff in the chapters especially in many of the chapters It's you know reasonably light as it were, yeah. like the, the dirty, the bathing one or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you're still, what you're modeling is that kind of critical history and thinking about why would somebody have come up with this mm-hmm. story in the first place? And ideally, I mean, this is the idealism yeah. of the teacher speaking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> These things we always hope we're doing. Ideally, that leads people to think about, well, why are other stories out there mm-hmm. the way they are? What are the processes that shape the way I think I know about the past? And is it worth me looking into it? If a story fits my own narrative too well, is that maybe in itself a sign that I should look more carefully at it because it fits the narrative of the person using it? Mm -hmm. At least I hope. I mean, it seems to me I really want this series to do something about the ancient world in the same way because I am very close to assigning one of your chapters to my students just as a model of the method like i would love to but i'm 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 teetering on the you know you always have to make decisions about (laughs) what you can include right you know because none of what you're doing you know it's all very much in the middle ages as it ought to be Uh so i'm just trying to sort of think is there one of these chapters where it overlaps enough with something that the ages there might be um,
1: i suppose the first chapter the first yeah yeah it it, it puts the middle ages beside the ancient world no exactly so So
2: that one might be Mm -hmm. but like some of the other ones are that the the pointed debunking of one story is a mm-hmm. nice mm-hmm. Sure. Um, hook for it, but so anyway. But I really, because I really do think as a as a, an exercise in historiography. Mm-hmm but not labeled that, because that makes it sound really boring. <laughs>
0: yeah, No, no. Myth-busting. Myth Call it myth-busting. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think there are volumes, I don't know if they're out yet, on Rome and Egypt. Um, well, I will I, I
2: definitely have to look for that. can't speak
0: for yes. their contents or quality, but yeah, they, they certainly would do a similar thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you, you found me out, <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> first, thank you for that. the, the, the praise of the, the chapters. That means a lot. But, yeah, obviously, I didn't want to be too modern and polemical, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, except in the intro, as you saw. And, and I think most of these chapters, no one will be offended. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, but they'll start thinking more deeply. Uh, where I don't, there, there, of course, there are people very deeply invested, unfortunately, in crusade history <laughs> and continuing mm-hmm. that. But I, I really can't imagine many people being bothered to find out that the children's crusade is mostly a myth, mm-hmm. and or or likewise with uh, the very final one, "Ring Around the Rosie." Almost everybody, it seems, grows up with the rhyme and grows mm-hmm. up quote knowing that it's actually about the Black Death, and. Yeah, it's just a product of later 20th century conspiracy hunting. We love that stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, we want to find it in the past. And so I think you're absolutely right that if we can just take all of these less, (laughs) less Less emotive. uh, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. less immediately politicized uh, aspects of the past starts building up a, a new picture of the Middle Ages. Oh, wait, maybe I have to question my preconceptions about women in the past, about race in the past, about increased diversity and greater tolerance in the past than I thought actually existed. Mm -hmm. So there's a hope.
2: Yeah. And I mean, that's obviously a place for the more directly confronting scholarship and also popular. Like, I, I think these are all important and useful. You know, if somebody were to come out of this thinking, I really need to know more about other stuff about the Middle Ages, one wants there to be works on those more difficult and emotional topics too yeah. but i think there's a place for a sort of entry level thinking about the past mm-hmm. and the histories and myths of the past that that somebody might be willing to read
1: yeah you, yeah. you know
2: there's just that like pragmatically it, you need them to open the book before mm-hmm. anything inside it can help <laughs>
1: <laughs> and i think you're right this is a really great example of the you know the methodology of mm-hmm. how to think Critically, mm-hmm. and and since it has you know the sources there as well, you yeah. know how to read critically mm-hmm. and see, you know by example how things went wrong, mm-hmm. you know by people miss, uh, you know getting the wrong end of the stick from some little comment that was made at one point, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: and the and the fact that you've got uh, I don't know if this was part of your balancing act and choosing topics, but you've got myths that come about in a bunch of different ways, as mm-hmm. you say, like mm-hmm. some of them, like the Children's Crusade, just essentially never happened. Pope Joan didn't exist, but Pope Joan was written about in the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. whereas the Children's Crusade wasn't really written about as a Children's Crusade until after the Middle Ages. Those are two different ways the myth develops versus the, you know, one's – so things that where where there was – where misreading of the sources – is, uh, is the reason is, you know, one reason or others where the sources exist and they say things, but they're lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. he, how do we know? How yeah. do we figure out that they're lying? Mm-hmm. What gives us that evidence? Um, you know, like having a bunch of different mechanisms, as it were, for these myth creation and, and with, levels with, of incorrectness. Some of them yeah. are like the knights on horseback. Yeah. You know, as you say, that's not untrue. It's, there were knights on horseback. They were valuable and important, and people cared about them. So it's that, that one's a matter of scale. Like, having those different levels, I think mm-hmm. really helps illustrate it too.
1: And with the flat earth chapter, how the sort of mythologizing around Columbus mm-hmm. as a national role model or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, nation building, nation yeah, yeah. building yes. and how that, you know, implies this untruth about the middle ages mm-hmm. that, you know, so there's this very political uh, agenda that produced the myth.
2: Mm hmm. In other words, what we're telling you listeners is, read this book, it's yes, really good, and assign good it to students, because i really, <laughs> really, that idea of um, being able to just, like, assign a chapter, yeah, or in, yeah. you know, in a class being able to say, okay, everybody pair up, you're going to take a chapter each, and you have to find one, you know, contextualize one of these sources a little bit more, or do a presentation on it to the rest of the class, just basically based on this, or, mm. you know find uh four pieces of evidence in contemporary pop culture of this myth being used would be like an easy one right Mm -hmm. like you say you don't have the you don't have you talk about the movies but you don't have the movies well that would be an easy thing to do to assign this and say okay find two movies in a tv show Mm -hmm. or like find something in contemporary pop culture that displays this myth and then Mm -hmm. explain why they used it in that movie how did it advance the purposes of the goals of that movie like, why did they choose this myth? What? How was it useful to them?
0: Yeah, that would be a great exercise. It makes me wish I had at least just one, one page in the book uh, off, <laughs> offering Yeah, a few study questions uh, or uh, proposals for yeah, how to take this further. But yeah, movies are, of course, uh, what can't be in this book. I mean, they're mentioned by name, but uh, it's so valuable to even watch five, ten minutes of thousands of problematic yeah. medieval movies. Uh, I had a great success last year uh, teaching Crusades uh, seminar, and we watched uh, pretty significant sections of Kingdom of Heaven.
2: Ah, yeah.
0: uh, Yes. (laughs) And there's some of it that I I really appreciate, but some of it is incredibly problematic. (laughs) And it it was one of the things I was writing this book at that time. And it was one of the things that really taught me uh, about the importance. Don't just tell students and readers you're wrong. If you believe this, it's so, mm-hmm. so essential. And in, in you two have uh, grasped this, why the myth came about, what does it mean to us or to people in the later 19th century, or whenever that, that that's part of history too. And something mm-hmm. yeah. uh, really important to know uh, about these myths.
1: Yeah. It's not just a question of, you know, nitpicking and saying, Oh, well, this is wrong or whatever, but it's, it's actually engaging with well, why? why is mm-hmm. why does that myth exist that I think is
2: and does it matter if it's wrong or not? yeah right yeah. like mm-hmm. you know pieces of chronology, like in um, Rome the series, for instance, you know, they mess they they mess with the chronology quite a bit to shorten up the timeline of right. uh, the early of the end of the Republic and the events that lead to the Civil war, you know, for obvious narrative reasons, for obvious sort of pacing reasons. Do I care about that? No. Like I don't think it matters. It's interesting, of course, if you want to study it, (laughs) but you know, it doesn't. It doesn't make any difference to what that story means Mm -hmm. in any big way. Now, do they drop all of Antony's wives? Yes, they drop all of Antony's Uh wives, and they create this. You know, the mother of Octavian into this totally other character. Is that good from a narrative point of view? Yeah, it does great things for the characters in the narrative is it a point that I do want to talk about with students and say, well, now why would he drop Fulvia and, but characterize Atia like Fulvia? Like what, why have they dropped it? What, what do they gain by making Antony not married and how incorrect would it be for any major, like the, the idea that any politician at the time would be unmarried for any length of time is just ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense at all. That's how you made political matches. Of course you're married all the time, you know, like, so in that, Worth talking about it doesn't mean I hate the show, but mm-hmm. it means it's something it's worth bringing up because mm-hmm. it tells us a lot about like what is what was we get to then talk about. Well, what were marriages like in the ancient world and why did they exist and how is that different than we, we think of as marriages now? And you know, what was the role of women and why are they presenting this woman in this way? So that's a myth that's or you know, that's a, a historical change. It's in the myth in this case, but a historical change that's worth discussing. Mm-hmm. Whereas why they moved Julia's death to, you know, just the year before the Civil War or whatever. That doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way about costumes and weapons in medieval shows Mm -hmm. and movies. There, of course, are corners of the internet uh, where people will get very worked up about this Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, dismiss a show because uh, someone's wearing a back scabbard and the wrong kind of leather armor or they didn't have that dye. Like, I don't care. <laughs> it's like, it, 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 that back scabbard looks freaking cool. I I, I don't care. <laughs> it's just, it's not part of my agenda. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's different levels of myths and what, what you want to expect from, I mean, here we're mostly just talking about fictional representations,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but uh, I guess my main concern is how do they shape then also our knowledge of the actual past?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and a deeply... It really deepens and com- complexifies. Is not a word, but let's pretend it is. Um, <laughs>
3: complexifies,
2: com- Oh, Yes, right. Of, how can I be a, an academic and get <laughs> the word com- to, <laughs> "complicate" as a verb? Goodness me, complicates and problematizes um, <laughs> the uh, no the um, the Middle Ages as a period. Which of course you start off by just explaining how ridiculous it is to be to p- paint at the Middle Ages with one brush. Period. But also the idea that there are narratives within that period itself of people already mythologizing their own past, right? Like giving us that layer of saying, it's not just that now we're getting it all wrong, because I think that's part of it, too. It's not just that now in the 20th Mm -hmm. century, suddenly we're making things up or getting it wrong or politicizing the past or something. That that has been happening since people have been writing histories. Um, I think that helps to make the medieval world a little clearer.
1: Well, of course, you know, a lot of the the myths about the Middle Ages are, you know, commonly circulated in the sort of popular world of medievalism, including, you know, fantasy novels and movies and so forth. And gaming uh, is another place, you know, in, in both in the the world of video games and, and the world of tabletop gaming, like Dungeons and Dragons is the really famous example of that.
3: Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, that was another sort of glaring absence if people are looking for it in the book. I mentioned D&D, Dungeons & Dragons uh, in the introduction, but I had to make a tough personal choice not to include much of it in the book because it's too close to home. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I told you guys this uh, years ago, but my my mother worked at Dungeons & Dragons at TSR for many years. Uh, She wrote fantasy novels. And uh, I grew up uh, at the feet of the creators right. of uh, d and uh, I knew Gary Gygax. Wow. And it, it's something I <laughs> uh, had to grapple with just in my own identity as a medieval historian. How much has D&D and other uh, fantasy, Tolkien and so on, shaped my view and my goals and my interests uh, in medieval history. And for the lo- longest time, I would say, it has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I am a serious <laughs> scholar. <laughs> and uh, I have I, I left that foolishness behind. Of course, in, in, in grad school and in, in college, I, played, I continued to play tabletop gaming, but tried to keep it as separate as possible. But in writing this book, I wanted to grapple personally more with what does Dungeons and & Dragons and similar gaming systems mean for me as a medieval historian, how might it have shaped some of my interests? And years ago, when I started working on my doctoral thesis, very boring work on uh, medieval church law and church administration. Uh, my mo-
2: how could you call that boring?
0: <laughs> shut, there's a, there's a few few nice people in Germany who are interested in it, <laughs> but there's a reason why I've switched to medieval medicine. But uh, mm. my my mother actually asked me. Why are you working on this? What's the appeal? And I, I took a few days to answer it and said, it's like D&D stats. It's it really is like a dungeon master's rule book, uh, where just the rule upon rule upon rule, uh, with levels and going up the ranking of the church, and you gain greater powers. It, it, it is what I thought about it is astonishingly similar, and I guess uh, I mean, that was the, the, the personal connection there. But it, when it comes to the book and thinking more generally about myths. Yeah, I've, I didn't put it too much in the book, but thought about what does it mean to pop viewers, uh, amateur historians and so on, uh, who might unconsciously think, uh, if they're familiar with D&D or similar gaming systems, what does it mean where you have a world with clearly delineated races, each with mm-hmm. strengths and weaknesses? What does it mean to have a world where, which is dominated almost entirely by men? Men playing mm-hmm. it, boys playing it, uh, and playing almost entirely male characters. I know that's changed, thankfully, in the last dozen or so years. But growing up in the '80s, <laughs> it, it, it was a boys' world.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's been some serious work done more recently on it, on the difficulties, of the legacy of gaming, and especially of mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons. How it is, as you said, complicated and problematized our view of the medieval past
2: hmm
0: and or uh,
2: oversimplified it in oversimplified too many ways.
0: it yeah. Yeah, yeah and again, again on a, a really personal note uh my my older of two sons is nine and mm-hmm. um he certainly got an inter- interested in fantasy and gaming and just a few days ago i rolled up my first uh, first character with him mm-hmm. using the pathfinder system and not D D which I, kind of hurts me on a personal level but (laughs) it's what folks play around here where i'm living now so but uh, i was thinking if i could do this book over again i think it would go back and maybe include more tabletop gaming Mm -hmm. but as we were talking about earlier i think the problems and the interest there especially have to do with gender and race portrayals of women And this uh, fictional notion of races, I'm an orc, Mm -hmm. I'm an elf, I'm a dwarf, and this is what makes me. There's a dangerous Mm -hmm. essentialism of races. Mm -hmm. And I think that can, unfortunately, be ported to the real world and help support uh, essentialist ideas about what makes this idea that races are real, (laughs) that they are defined Mm -hmm. by this or that attribute Mm -hmm. and stat. And that's very dangerous. And that's, I think, uh, give a plug here for the Pathfinder system. I think D&D more recently has overcome it, but in their publications, they're very careful now to show women not just in ripped bodices, <laughs> not just as objects to be conquered or saved, and likewise um, show people humans of all colors and classes and backgrounds. I think they're, they're, they're aware of some of their difficult legacy.
2: Mm-hmm. I almost wish when I when Seeds sizey I did and I don't know that this would solve all the problems it probably wouldn't. Yeah. But if originally D&D had had separate species, not races. Yeah. Right. It wouldn't have hurt. Let's just put it that yeah, way. It I'm, I'm I... not saying that I'm not saying that would have solved it all like different humanoid species being <laughs> it would still be essentialist, but like I think we all have pretty much accepted that humans are essentially different than cats. Yeah. And I don't think that's <laughs> problematic. So, you yeah. know, But just by terming it races, Mm -hmm. it it did the the, yeah. There's a lot there. (laughs) There's a lot going on there.
0: Pathfinder tries to get around that, uh, calling it ancestry rather than race. Mm. So, but uh, still, it's still the same thing. Yeah, Yeah.
2: And, and and you do. I mean, you do talk in the book a little bit about video games. Yes. And of course, there is that. I mean, obviously, first of all, this general mishmash of myths and, and building all these myths together. And that certainly is a big part of it. But also, when you're talking about essentialism, you know, there's nothing like we're playing Age of Empires with the kids right now. Yeah. And like, well, if you're a Byzantine, here's what you are able to do. And if yes. you're, a, <laughs> a, you know, you can, if you're Teuton, you can do this. And this is what you're best suited mm-hmm. to. And and that's not even, I mean, that is racism in our sense of the word really or nationality so it becomes it's it's essentially Mm ethno-nationalism um you know done in order to i don't think done with in malicious intent in any way but you know it's for the convenience of and and ports vaguely towards actual cultural Mm -hmm. truths about them but like cultural truths about what armament they had at any period or something but Mm -hmm. yeah it you know there's an underlying view of the world there that is very troubling and it's it's hard to we're playing with our kids and they're 12 and 8 right and Mm What point in the fun video gaming night do you stop and say, okay, now listen, kids, but I want you to understand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like I, I bring up civilization games uh, mm-hmm. in the Knights chapter and uh, the centrality yeah. of the Knight for defining the, quote, medieval level of the civilization
3: Mm-hmm. I
0: don't think that's gonna make our world a bad place <laughs>
2: right. but it's not yeah. ruining the world yeah yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah but yeah more seriously this very problematic yeah I I still play all the time uh what am I playing Civ 5 uh I haven't mm-hmm. bought Civ 6 yet <laughs> don't. uh I don't don't have much yeah I've heard that it's don't
2: we tried it once we can't yeah i can't play it
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I loved uh, civ 3 and civ 5 yeah. but yeah when you suddenly run into the zulu and here mm. is as problematic an image and yeah it's a strong ethno national state but they have this very problematic image of course of the zulu warrior um mm. or of a Say less dangerous, but you've yeah, got the Viking, and at least he doesn't have a horned helmet. But <laughs> it's, it's well, it's, and, it's,
2: and you contrast that with Abraham Lincoln, is your oh, American, right? Yeah, and so it's sort of like, <laughs> is this how, America? Yeah. How are our myths? Yeah, yeah. obviously, America is a yeah. man in a suit who's freed the slaves, yeah. right? Like, yeah. well, that's America, whereas, yeah, yeah. And, and then yeah, you've so got it's, Gandhi it's, nuking people, it's all very complicated. That, that's always fun, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, that was a, another. Choice. I mean, there's things that came out of my personal life where what gaming I do is mostly slow turn based games rather than first person shooters because those scare the heck out of me. (laughs) I've never, I've never, I mean, I. Yeah. Uh, uh, Wolfenstein came out when I was already a teenager and I just wasn't ready for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Having, having grown up just with Mario and the first yeah. Nintendo. but <laughs> I, I am, here's where I'll, I'll point where I'll plug my next book. ABC Cleo already asked me to write a sequel to this just oh. on the black death Oh, very because cool. they loved my black death chapter, the very last one. Mm-hmm. And I already included two myths in that chapter and Mm -hmm. while i'm not i won't call myself an expert in the black death because i haven't done original research on the topic i have taught the course uh courses on the black death for many years now Mm -hmm. and i'm directly engaged with really the top black death scholars in the field and want to be at the cutting edge of teaching the truth about the black death and i just bring that up because um i need to find some time to uh, watch somebody uh you guys might be familiar with it. There's a brand new PlayStation game called "Plague: An Innocence Tale." I think oh, okay.
2: We don't have PlayStation. That's yeah. the, the yeah. Yes. So well, yes, uh, but I yet. think it's <laughs> also it's also pushing on it. But
0: yeah, I think it's also on PC and probably will come out for yeah. iOS.
2: So you need to get somebody <laughs> well, to play it for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: but I've certainly watched several trailers and YouTube videos of this. And here, I think this game it looks pretty interesting. But it's going to shape, very much shape Mm -hmm. uh, for the next five years, the pop understanding of plague. And Mm -hmm. in this game, the main thing one of the characters has to do is not be caught in the dark because you will be overwhelmed by thousands of plague rats. (laughs) <laughs> and they will kill you, and kill your little brother. And uh, wow. um, I like the idea that you're in the game. You're playing a first person, a teenage girl who is mostly defenseless, and so hmm. you have to survive on your wits. So I like that. That's another issue mm-hmm. entirely. But this, of course, is, as I said, going to shape uh, images of plague. And then, oh, this just is driving me crazy. The girl is being hunted down by a malevolent church inquisition. Oh, and of uh, the, 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 the church and the Inquisition have a lot to answer for, but <laughs> this idea of this dark, omnipresent, evil church hunting down anyone that stands in their way, that's, of course, a central problem of, of my Middle Ages book, uh, mm-hmm. where especially that, that middle chapter, the medieval church actively suppressed knowledge and science. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, at play in that video game and, um, mm-hmm. and other games.
2: And yeah, and I mean, that, like, that's the point when you talk about witches. It's, it's not that you're denying there's problems in the past, and it's not that there weren't lots of problems with the church and other things in the Middle yeah. Ages. But that pushing of what are early modern problems mm-hmm. onto the Middle Ages is a way of saying, oh, post-Enlightenment, or not Enlightenment, but Renaissance, yeah. you know, yeah. post-humanism. Let's say we never had those problems. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. they aren't, they're medieval. Like, yeah. as yeah. soon as rationality hit, as soon as the Renaissance rediscovered the ancient world and we moved past Aristotle or moved into Aristotle, people are really torn <laughs> about what they think about Aristotle. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> suddenly we didn't have those superstitions and we were reasonable and rational. Whereas, in fact, those particular, like the church as inquisitor and the problems of the church of the of burning, you know these, these these outbreaks of what we might call mass hysteria, hysteria and superstition yeah. and whatever are very much a product of the of the early modern period. Yes, <laughs> and of the forces of the early modern period and, and of and of these forces of rationality and all of these things. So it's not that we need to deny that there was bad stuff about the ancient or about the medieval world. It's that we need to say, look, it's not some other thing. Yeah. It's part of this myth of that we hit a point in progress and ever since then, everything's been forward looking (laughs) and we position ourselves within that narrative or people want to position ourselves within that narrative. And therefore, they make this hard break with the Middle Ages and push everything that's superstitious or whatever into the middle ages
1: and it's you get you know all these public intellectuals or politicians mm-hmm. or whatever using the word medieval to mean you know backwards,
2: backwards and superstitious and, 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 and cruel and so yeah, forth yeah. because once we once rationality was became a thing because <laughs> apparently it wasn't before um <laughs> we stopped being cruel yeah yeah and and that and like torture right torture as a standard mm-hmm. approach to Law, you know, getting confessions or things like that. Oh, yeah. that must be medieval.
0: Oh, yeah, that was another chapter that didn't make the cut. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> uh, I just couldn't. And that,
2: f- like, I think that's the core problem. Is yeah. it's not yeah. that these, not that there wasn't horrible stuff going on in the Middle Ages. Like, and I think your book does a good job of saying. Like, I'm not saying everything was rosy. Yeah. <laughs> that's not <Yeah>. the that point.
0: <laughs> but, yeah, there um, was some torture, but we yeah. do a heck of a lot more <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> in and, the modern and the- period, and we justify it with our rationality.
2: Yeah yeah exactly. we use our our rationality for all sorts of bad stuff, yeah, no, I think that's really and 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 video games really are uh, a central place, as you say right now for shaping public consciousness of a lot of stuff, even if you don't play them mm-hmm. yeah uh, they still affect that the visuals are there and and there's enough people who are playing them or who are nearby when others play them that they really do affect the way people think so you mentioned a little bit about your upcoming projects, sure. I, I, it's, it has seemed to me, from the comments you have made on Twitter, that you have quite a few upcoming projects. <laughs> Would you like to tell us about any of them, any others, <laughs> what, what you're working on or things that are coming out? Yeah,
0: i uh, glad to. As I said, I've got this Black Death book I'm working on. Uh, hopefully that'll be done by the end of next year. I'm just having a field day, <laughs> <laughs> gathering, trying to define the myths. Uh, there are so many uh, surrounding the mm-hmm. Black Death. But one little project that came out of just the medicine chapter that I really wanted to work more on um, in the the chapter medieval medicine was nothing but superstition. Mm -hmm. I was really taken by and finally sat down and read all the way through a novel from the 80s called The Physician by Noah Gordon. And it was made into a movie just a couple of years ago. And both are very problematic, but not no no big surprise here. The movie is much more problematic than the book. (laughs) Anyway, it's got the it perpetuates this idea of medieval Europe completely backwards, medieval Islamic world, though, nearly enlightened. (laughs) And Uh uh, it plays off that uh, duality way too much. Uh And uh, one of the heroes of the book is the real Islamic physician, Avicenna, or Ibn Sina. And I just mentioned that character in passing. Sure enough, in the movie, he's played by Ben Kingsley, sort of the the all-purpose... Uh, uh, not quite white person yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's a whole other issue there but now they sat down and re- read the book all the way through watched the movie thought more deeply about this I'm, I'm i'm writing a chapter for a book that's will be coming out i hope in a couple of years it's just starting edited by a different person lucy barnhouse
3: mm-hmm.
0: on medieval medicine in pop culture right. and it's tentatively being called beyond Cadfile. Uh, So we've got the uh, character of Catfile, but my (laughs) chapter contribution will be about Avicenna in pop culture, and especially in modern Middle Eastern pop culture, where he has become one of their greatest heroes. Mm -hmm. They they put him on stamps. uh, Several nations claim to have his body, (laughs) and he (laughs) becomes this all-purpose intellectual and religious hero. But the West has claimed him, too. (laughs) And he, for... I'll say the West here means America and England and France. Really, um, he's become the good medieval Muslim who is not trapped by his religion but follows reason, and he's mm-hmm. different things for different cultures, and so he's a great character. And another project I have, I've doing a lot right now. I've actually got a book coming out <laughs> uh, in just a few weeks from Broadview Press. This is a reader of primary sources called "Medicine and Healing in the Premodern World," and. Oh, that's good. good. Really and and that's, explicit, that's explicitly a classroom book. I mean, it's about 100 mm-hmm. sources from all the way from ancient Egypt up to late Black Death. So covering about 4,000 <laughs> years of not just Western, I try to extend it well into Africa and uh, Middle East and beyond, but pretty much that sort of Western post-Plato, post-Aristotle world, and it really especially Hippocrates. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's coming on in a few weeks. and
2: So it's a history uh, of the humorous bit.
0: Is what you're saying. Exactly. It's a lot of humoral
2: <laughs> theory, but because. But not
0: only, yeah. yeah, not only. I, because I call it medicine and healing. It's not just humors and Hippocrates and Galen. There's also religious healing, mm-hmm. uh, magical healing, different ways that pre modern people thought they could improve the health, hasten death in a nice way. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, a lot of work trying to narrow that down to just uh, 91 sources written in visual. Into afford- an affordable book. But so I'm really excited about that. And a similar uh, project coming out, I hope, next summer that I'm doing for Toronto is a history and sources of medieval pharmacy and drugs. And so mm. that's going to have a long, long essay, sort of synthesizing, and this really is my area of expertise, uh, synthesizing how do you study. Medieval drugs? What was medieval pharmacy? Mm. How is it similar and different from modern pharmacy? And again, it's a classroom text. It provides students uh, with uh, selections from medieval texts. Uh, I'll be translating all of those myself, uh, providing new translations, and a selection of uh, modern articles from other scholars of the history of pharmacy. So it gives students a handy, we're calling it a case study, a handbook Mm -hmm. for. How do I go about studying medieval drugs and pharmaceuticals? So hmm. a lot on my plate. <laughs> the, all these projects overlap. Uh, right. Some are obviously more pop audience or high school student level. Others are meant for, say, grad students and scholars for getting a deeper look at some of these subjects that I'm interested hmm, in.
2: Fascinating. That's a, yeah, that's a ton of that's stuff. You're of stuff. Doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's making me, it's making me stressed just listening to you.
0: <laughs> I, I, I love writing. I, I love research. Yeah. And so,
2: yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the source book for medicine, for instance, could be, you know, that's the sort of thing where I'm like, I might draw on a, parts of that for my Sex and the Body in the Ancient World class, for instance, or something like that. Like, that sounds like it can be quite useful, even if you didn't use it for uh, an actual course on medicine.
0: Yeah, and I've included significant sections in that uh, uh, on gender, gynecology, Mm -hmm. uh, childbirth, obstetrics, uh, abortion, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. issues that you wouldn't find in uh, similar books in the past.
2: (laughs) Yeah. This is uh, a medicine reader for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Mm, Very good. Well, I think on that note, we should probably uh, let you go and get writing, because now I'm just going to feel that anytime I see you on Twitter, I just want to say, no, you have things you to have, write, go away! big <laughs> Not that you're an inveterate Twitterer or anything, nothing like me.
1: <laughs> so everyone, do check out the book. Again, it's The Middle Ages Facts and Fictions by Winston Black. It is well worth your time. It is both very entertaining, but also you will learn a whole lot from it.
2: And it is not scolding. I I just realized I wanted to say this earlier. It's not scolding or dismissive of people who have these myths. And I think that's really crucial. It does not say you're dumb because you think this. It says, hey, there's lots of good reasons why you would think this about the ancient world because lots of people have tried to tell you it. And uh, I think that's an absolutely important part of the tone. I just forgot I wanted to say that earlier.
0: <laughs> Good. <laughs> I was aiming for that. Thank you for saying that.
2: And, yeah. you know, I
1: probably should have said uh, at, at the beginning, uh, but, you know, full disclosure, uh, Winston and I are old uh, grad school <laughs> companions. So uh, we yes. both were at the Center for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto. So it was lovely to chat with you again.
0: It was great talking with you guys. I was a little afraid because weren't you my TA?
1: Ooh,
2: I don't even remember now. <laughs> that it was, was a long, long time day. ago.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, the, the, the old hierarchy suddenly uh, <laughs> yes. establishing themselves. He's going to correct my conjugation. <laughs> Just don't get the Latin wrong. <laughs> oh, you've probably been working much more with Latin sources than Mark has in the last last few years years,
3: yeah
2: yeah Yeah. Yeah, no it was really nice to catch up and uh yeah it was
0: great talking with you
2: and um good luck with the next book coming out and with all All the the other things things you're writing and uh, yes sharing those as well and so happy new school year, everyone (laughs) and and one last thing uh if anyone wants
1: to you know find you on the internet how can and if they're interested in in your work how can yes
0: uh the 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 best place is probably through Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Winston E. Black. Uh, Also go by the the nickname Medieval Medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of private stuff there, (laughs) personal stuff rather, but also a lot on Medieval Medicine and Black Death and anything else I find interesting. So that's a great place to catch up on what I'm doing lately.
2: Great. Well, thanks again. And uh, we'll hopefully talk online soon.
0: (laughs) Talk to you soon.